Welcome back to the program. Creative destruction, change, automation, the internet of everything, these are all the issues that seem to impact every aspect of modern life. And whether you believe these things are good or bad is not relevant. What is relevant is that they are happening everywhere, including in the context of American spycraft, diplomacy, and in institutions like the CIA. In a world where quick and nimble and, of course, secrecy are often the objective best practices, spycraft today has gotten mired in the institutional morass of an ever bigger bureaucracy. That's the underlying backdrop for David Ignatius's latest spy thriller, The Director. David Ignatius is the best-selling author of Body of Lies and The Increment, as well as a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for The Washington Post. He's covered the Middle East and the CIA for more than 25 years, and it is my pleasure to welcome David Ignatius back to this program to talk about the director. David, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It's great to be back, Jeff. Thank you. Great to have you here. It is interesting that in a time when quick and nimble is becoming more important in every institution, even in the institution of spycraft, that in fact the intelligence agencies have gotten larger and larger and arguably more mired down in bureaucracy. I think the, the problems that we've seen with NSA are the combination of the technology which is so quick and nimble, which allows you uh, instant digital access to to every form of communication. And also the recruitment into these agencies, CIA and NSA both, of, uh, you know, kids who come out of a hacker background. When I went out to NSA to research this book in 2012, I saw a lot of young men with ponytails and, you know, dressed in black T-shirts and just unconventional-looking people who might be walking around a hacker convention and probably were a few years ago when they were recruited. The combination of people like that who want to hack everything in sight and this vast secret bureaucracy which just grows and grows without adequate supervision from Congress, from the courts. I mean, that's what I think produced the excess that we've seen in these NSA revelations. There's a basic mission that I think most Americans would probably support, but it got layered and layered with so much additional stuff. And that's my guess as to, as to, as to why it happened. That's what I'm trying to sort out in, in my book, The Director. And in many ways, The Director, the story is really about the collision between these two things, between this kind of hacking ethic that you're talking about and the world of espionage. Exactly. You, you have a new director who comes into the into the CIA at the beginning of my book named Graham Weber. He, he comes with a mandate from the president to try to shake the place up, to bring it out of the past. He's coming from business himself. He's worked for a big communications company in Seattle. He's actually resisted FBI national security letters, so he's kind of, you know, more on the civil liberties side. The president says, shake this place up, change it. And on his first week on the job, he ends up being confronted by the ultimate intelligence nightmare. Uh, A defector, uh, a young kid who's a hacker himself, walks into our consulate in Hamburg and says, you've been hacked, and hands the base chief, CIA base chief, a list of the names of all the CIA personnel in Germany and Switzerland whose names have been compromised. And our new director has to decide what on earth is he going to do about this threat and turns to the smartest young whiz kid, technological whiz kid he can find in the agency named James Morris. And that leads to a series of nightmarish problems for him that uh, he struggles with throughout the book. 
to what extent does the degree of change that he that Weber wants to make in in shaking things up at the beginning to what extent does that come back to haunt him in many ways? I mean, even to the point of getting rid of the, the statue of Wild Bill Donovan. He, he Symbolically, on his first day at the CIA, he decides he wants to get rid of the statue of the founder, uh, William Donovan, who created the OSS during World War II, which became the CIA. If, if any visitor who's ever been at the CIA sees it, it's the first thing you see when you walk in the door. And he decides, let's let's get rid of it as a symbol to the employees of this place. We are not going to be stuck 50, 60, 70 years ago. So, um, you know, that, that upsets people. He, he finds that this uh, statue uh, is, is not the only ghost that haunts the place, that they're everywhere. And he keeps encountering them. And again, that's part of the struggle that he has through the book is untangling the CIA as, a, as an, an American institution from its roots, uh, which pull it away from, I think, our traditions and values. And yet there has to be a degree of respect for, for those roots and what the agency has done and what it's accomplished over so many years. The CIA has had some great successes, and uh, in, my, in my novels I've written about some of the, mm-hmm. you know, great operations that they ran. My first novel was, was an amazing story of how they recruited Arafat's chief of intelligence as an American agent uh, and ran him through the 1970s. So uh, I respect the achievements. I do think that over time, uh, as the agency got bigger, uh, as, as, it, as it became more bureaucratic, as it became, frankly, more risk-averse, looking over its shoulder, as Congress second-guessed its operations more and more, a lot of that um, uh, panache, if you will, um, began to, to, to disappear. Some of that was for the good. Sometimes their risk-taking was, was unwise, and they, they did things that, looking back, are, are shocking to us. That's certainly the case with their interrogation policy. Um, I worry right now that um, we have a CI that's just too big. It's, it's too big to manage. It's too big uh, to use. Ideally, we want an intelligence service that can identify the secrets that we need to know to stay alive, to protect ourselves as a country, and go after those and not try to collect everything on the planet, not, not you know, this crazy kind of, you know, grab everything in sight that we see with the NSA, but a much more targeted approach. And I think that will only happen if you have a, a smaller CIA uh, that focuses on the secrets that matter. We talked earlier about this tension that exists, this collision that happens at the core of, of the director between the hacking culture and the world of espionage. The other tension that seems to exist is the tension between bureaucracy ever-growing on the one hand and the primary mission of secrecy on the other. It's, it's very hard to maintain secrecy and security, as we see in the, in the Stoughton case. Um, when you get so big... Uh, you just have there's so many employees there's so many people who can go off on 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 their own um and you know inevitably the response is to add more layers of security and more classification and you know more glue to gum up the gum up the works i just you know i've been writing about the cia for 30 years and i've come to the conclusion that the only answer is really to make it smaller so that so that it is you know it it, it can be hidden better I mean, you want spies who really are invisible, who don't hang out at embassy cocktail parties, but are, but are, but are you know, 
in, invisible under deep cover. You want spies who go after the, the things that really make a difference, not, not not all the economic data from every third world country around the world. That, that's that's not those are not the matters of life and, and, and death. And you want a, 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 an agency that can protect its secrets and those of other agencies of the government through good counterintelligence. I mean, we just have got gotten caught. Uh, flat-footed too many times the, the, the case of that tragic uh, attack on the CIA base and coast in, in eastern Afghanistan where we thought we were running a double agent uh, in, inside the Taliban getting close to al-Qaeda uh, and it, it turned out that this was a, a deception of, of the United States from beginning to end and an awful lot of uh, decent people got, got killed and the answer to that is you know we just didn't have a strong enough counterintelligence, counterespionage function going uh, as, the, as we were pressing it with a counterterrorism side. So that's a, that to me, that's another lesson. And a, a smaller, more focused agency might be able to do that better. Would that help us understand better the balance that we seem to be struggling to find still between data and human intelligence? And what's the right balance of those two? Well, the two uh, have to go together. I mean, to, to be able to do the technical operation that gets you inside somebody's system, let's say, so you're able to, you know, to 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 to, to read his attack plans against the United States, um, requires you to to have the human agents who can, you know, who can who can get you inside, who can help you plant whatever equipment you've got. Um, the, the notion that they're entirely separate, I think, has been one of the uh, mistakes the CIA has sometimes made. The human people insist this is all about human beings, the, the, the technical people at, at CIA, and, uh, but even more at, at other agencies like NSA, insist, no, no, it's, 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 the, it's, our, it's our technical wizardry that's our special advantage. No, I, the, the, the two have to go together. One thing that the agency is doing better is to use the diversity of American society to, to draw a pool of officers who can um, operate better under deep cover, who just don't stick out uh, in quite the same way as they travel around the world. And I think that's, that's good. That's a, an advantage the United States has as we draw people from every culture around the world. They come to America, they do well, they thrive, they're very patriotic, and, and a lot of them you know, want to sign up to be, to be CIA officers. And I think that that gives the the U.S. a real advantage uh, over a lot of countries. As it relates in some ways to the characters in this story and some of the things that we've been talking about, how is change in generational culture impacting the CIA? CIA worries uh, when when you talk to senior management about um, a kind of... um, uh, empty space between the very senior managers and, and the very junior recruits. CI surged like the military after 9/11. They they drew in just a ton of people, and um, those people are are are, are falling away now. Um, but you, but you still have a, a, a quite a young workforce. Um, uh, with our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you had people stacked up sometimes by the hundreds in very large CIA stations uh, in these in these war zones. Um, but because of security requirements, they weren't able to to move about freely. 
Uh, so it, you know, it ended up being, you know, in a sense, a glamorous uh, war zone tour, but without a lot of the uh, kinds of, of activities that would help a young officer develop. And you know, I, again, I think um, a, a, a smaller agency where people are moving about under non-official cover, not in these huge mega stations. Um, would be advantageous for this younger workforce. You know, give, I'll say in, in in my business of journalism, the only way to develop young reporters is to give them a chance to take risks and sometimes make mistakes, and and then be there to catch them. It's very hard for the CIA to let people make mistakes because the mistakes can end up, you know, coming back and causing congressional investigations or international mm-hmm. incidents. But the same basic um, idea about how you how you grow, how you learn. Uh, works for, for CI or any other government agency uh, as it does for for my business journalism or or you know somebody else's business in technology. How is it impacting in terms of turnover within the agency when we talk about young officers or young people in any profession today? It's not the same kind of career consciousness that once existed, and that's true, I'm sure, in the CIA as well. Uh, I think it's fair to say the CIA is a tough place to, to make a career. Um, in years past, there was a bit of a cult of management where you know, it was thought to be important to be a good manager, so you'd move from area to area. This was true for analysts. The State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research lets people, say, if you're a Germany expert, they'll let you do Germany for 20 years. You know, because you're the best on Germany, you have the language skills, you have the area expertise. At the CIA, if you were in the director of intelligence where the analysts are, you'd be encouraged to move around. You know, okay, spend a few years doing Germany, but then it'd be great if you, you know, did this, you know, Eastern European um, thing, and you know, it'd be good to look at uh, at at uh, you know economic uh, intelligence for uh, the European community or for or for Central Europe, and so people move back and forth and make their bones as managers uh, without necessarily being able to retain that uh, particular area expertise. And again, I I think in an agency that was a little bit smaller, less interested in 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 knowing everything about everything, uh, you get more of that really precise expertise. Are we seeing within the intelligence community the same kind of cults of personality that evolve in so many other aspects of our culture today, a sense almost of celebrity culture within an organization like the CIA? I wouldn't worry so much about about that. I mean, CIA is not a place, obviously, for people who have a yen to be celebrities because your your work is secret and you can't really tell anybody about it. Um, in the old days, the danger was less uh, that that kind of person than, than that sort of cowboy who who wanted to take extreme risks and uh, very hard to hard to manage, hard to control. Uh, you know, some of the famous CI characters uh, of the past were that were that way. Um, you know, I I I think it's a it's 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 a funny kind of a, of a of a of a business to 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 go into the the people who are going to do it well often in my experience you know having met a lot of these people when they retire the the person who you know in a, in a big room the last person you'd think would be uh the you know cloak and dagger person sometimes makes the very best uh the the person who your eyes just skip past i, I think of 
a man named Archie Roosevelt, who was related to the T.R. Roosevelt family, who was a brilliant intelligence officer, had had an incredible gift for difficult languages, Turkish, Arabic, taught himself all the languages of Central Asia, wandered, you know, often anonymously in that part of the world. Um, you know, just a very kind of mild-mannered person. You just, you know, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. He was a superb spy because he was unobtrusive and he had the gift of listening, listening to people. There's a great book that your listeners should should think of, which to buy the director, but I also would recommend a book <laughs> called The Good Spy, which is a nonfiction book about one of the best intelligence officers the United States ever produced, named Robert Ames, who operated in the Middle East. I actually wrote my first novel about him in a fictional fictional form. If you read that book, you'll see that he was a he was a listener. He was a quiet a quiet person. There was no James Bond about him at all. And uh, we see so many films that purport to be about spies. Frankly, they have very little to do with what I think um, the espionage business is all about. Is it still about, or does it still contain, as it did arguably during the the darkest days of the Cold War, a sense of moral twilight as far as the espionage business is concerned? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. The uh, John Le Carre, mm-hmm. our greatest spy novelist, um, is the person who really, I think. Um, painted this world in 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 grays. Uh, when I look at the Cold War, uh, I'm not so sure it was all that uh, ambiguous morally. I mean, the Soviet Union was, as Ronald Reagan said, an evil empire. I visited Russia and all those Eastern European countries, which were police states. And uh, the fact that the United States never lost faith with the idea that this would not be a permanent a cloud over Eastern Europe that someday Germany would be reunited, one Germany, someday the hold of the Stasi, the East German secret police, would be broken. I don't think that was a you know a morally ambiguous fight. I think it was it was it was it was a just fight. And um, I think in 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 our current uh, environment where the the fight the CIA and, and and our military has been waging has been against post 9/11 uh, people associated with Al Qaeda. Tragically, we wandered into Iraq, which was a tangential um, uh, turn. Uh, but I think the counterterrorism function of, that the CIA took on at the request of, of President Bush and then President Obama um, has, has sort of swallowed the rest of, of the agency. Counterterrorism, the Counterterrorism Center, uh, is so important. That's the part of the CIA that runs the drone operations uh, over the tribal areas of Pakistan, over Yemen, uh, perhaps over other places. Uh, it's the part of the agency that ran the operation that uh, killed Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, Pakistan. That part of the of the CIA, um, I think, uh, does such uh, kind of uh, operations that that you know even in the in the tough old days when the CIA was supposedly so ruthless, they never contemplated uh, operations of the sort that are routine today. So you know I think looking forward, shifting the balance back toward the basic collection of foreign intelligence and away from 
the paramilitary covert action side would be a good thing. It'd be good for the agency. I think the, the moral ambiguity that, that people out there feel, they don't want to be in the murder incorporated business. They want to be intelligence officers. They could be, so I think it'd be good for them. Is the mission then as clear today for young officers coming into the CIA? No, I think it's muddy. And I think mm-hmm. one thing that uh, John Brennan as director should try to do, probably is trying to do, is, is, is clarify that. Say, you are, uh, you know, as, as, as officers of, of Central Intelligence Agency, your job is to um, protect the nation by uh, discovering, analyzing secrets, by developing new technologies that can be used to, to help the United States know things it needs to know by doing these things that you're assigned to do in a way that's legal and fits with what our country is, doesn't contradict our values, but reinforces them. Uh, you know, I mean, that's that's the would be the kind of elevator speech you assume that a director would would give to his employees. Um, uh, I hope so, because that's this is a place that needs leadership to see. We America loves its military. You know, he's, soldiers in uniform walk through an airport and people stop and start applauding. See, I doesn't get that kind of support. Generally speaking, most people think, oh, you know, I'm not not sure I'm, I'm comfortable with those guys and what they do. But the, but they, in in a way, because what they're doing is so isolated, they they need they need the support at least as much as the uniform military. And I, you know, I think that's one thing that President Obama um, should communicate more. He's, you know, he's been supportive of, of the agency. Put an immensely talented political figure in Leon Panetta at, at CIA when he first uh, was elected in 2009. Panetta ended up being a, a very good CIA director. It was beloved by the workforce, in part because he gave him cover because he'd been. You know, uh, White House chief of staff because he'd been a prominent member of Congress because he knew the political world because he could go out there and and basically um, uh, stand up for the agency. And uh, that, John Brennan, the current director, is a much quieter person. I mean, he's in the job, frankly, because I think he's the person that, that President Obama trusts most with this most difficult work of government. Um, there's a real personal bond between Obama and Brennan. Uh, but in terms of the uh, external uh, making friends, building support uh, part of the job, Batty hasn't done so well. In, in fact, he's gotten into a huge fight with your senator, Diane Feinstein. Uh, it was just a you know, kind of train wreck, um, sort of personality conflict between Brennan and Feinstein, uh, which uh, hopefully is getting better. But uh, the, the, the CIA gets in trouble when it, when it has no political support in the country. And that's something that any director has to has to worry about. And during the talking about celebrity culture before, what happened to the agency during the Petraeus era? How did that play out within the agency? Well, Petraeus wasn't really there long enough uh, to, to 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 make a, a significant mark. I think it's fair to say that he was uh, mistrusted when he initially arrived. I wrote a, a profile of him six months or so into his tenure, and I picked up a lot of the criticism uh, that you heard from uh, younger officers, middle management, um, as it filtered toward a journalist like me, um, that, you know, Petraeus was coming in from the world of a four-star general. He was used to the perks that a a four-star general has. You know, a four-star flies around in his own private uh, kind of Gulfstream uh, uh, G5-type airplane. He's got... 
hundreds of people in effect on his staff. Uh, the the uh, you know gen- generals have have all the all the the goodies. Um, CI directors don't. They travel light. I remember when Petraeus got there, he you know Petraeus is a, is a fitness buff, and he wanted to have a first class gym like he was used to in the military. The military builds great gyms everywhere it goes. Uh, as soon as it's finished, the the, the dining facility it builds a builds a gym. So Petraeus wanted to build a super gym at, at the CI, and it got it became a big flap uh, where the money was going to come from, and could it come from? You know, designated operations purposes that should be raised privately. Um, I think uh, by the by the time Petraeus got in, in in trouble and was forced to leave, things were settling down some. He was getting to know the place better. People didn't have their backs up quite so much. Uh, but um, he was coming from a, a different culture, and um, I think it would have taken Petraeus another year anyway to really feel that the CIA was his home. And finally, David, can the CIA do what it needs to do in so many of the areas we've touched on within the context of this huge bureaucracy that it sits inside of today? Uh, I think that, uh, obviously, it can continue as this uh, over, overgrown bureaucratic organization. I don't think it can do its job as efficiently and effectively as I'd like to see, unless it pairs itself down. I, you know, I've been writing this for, for the better part of 10 years. This, this is not a new thought for me, and it, it, it's something that uh, in all of my books over the last decade, you know, I, I, I've written about what I think are the corrosive effects of bureaucracy. What, what bothers me, Jeff, is c- combining bureaucracy with its instinct for self-preservation, expansion, status quo with secrecy in which the sort of proper oversight ventilation of an organization change uh, identification of, of good and bad personnel um, is is limited be, because of the of the rules of secrecy and classification that combination is poisonous and somehow um, our CI management although management of the whole intelligence community has to figure out a way to, to to do that better. Again, I think if, as you peel back the NSA story, you find the reason it ended up just doing so many things, you know, going way past the necessary to the to the unnecessary, um, was this, this combination of it's very bureaucratic, it's very secret, and so it's tough to control. David Ignatius, his latest thriller and look at the CIA is the director David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.